take your Bibles and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one, and we're going to start with verse 18. So about hmm, a little over a year ago, while we were back in Japan, I was at the church, and there was a knock on the door. I went to greet the person. And we were visited by a Buddhist door-to-door evangelist. She said that she had come to talk about religion with me, but she had really come to pepper me with questions to try to tear down what I believe. And as she fired off question after question, at one point, she asked me, what makes you think that some man hanging on a cross can save you. Because in her sect of Buddhism, the holy men, when they died, they died peacefully, and there was a glow that emanated from them to show that they were holy, that they were righteous, that they were guiding us in the way. But by contrast, the holy man of my religion died bruised, beaten, gasping for breath, in pain as a common criminal. And so what power, what wisdom is there in that? And that same question is put to us in a thousand different ways. And you may have heard something like that before. We have recently when our friend, our age, whose wife is dying, stage four cancer, and her nurse asks, why would God allow a pastor's wife to go through this? Or our friend who has been in Japan preaching the gospel for over 20 years, says, I've been doing this for so long and there's still no church. (laughs) What's going on? Or maybe it's the question, why bother to go to church? Especially, you know, if you go to college or if you've, you know, got a good job where you make lots of money and you can make more money by working. What do you gain by doing that? At the heart of all of those questions is the same thing. A Savior dying on a cross, weakness, what good is that to us? Is that not just foolishness? And Paul is tackling that question head on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He's leaning into it. To say, you're right, it is foolishness, it is weakness, and that is why we boast in the cross of Christ. 
And so he writes these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 through verse 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. If you were to come to Japan, one of the first things you would notice is that roads are very small. And it's not just because cars are smaller, because they fit more onto smaller roads. In fact, this aisle right here in the middle of the room, in some places, is considered a two-lane road. Two-lane not because you can actually fit two cars down it, but two-lane because, yeah, we can go both ways. And the best ones are the ones that go out in the countryside through the rice paddies, Because the road is raised up above the rice paddies, and now the road is this big, there are no walls, no fences, and so if your tires go off the side, you're rolling into the rice paddy, they have to send a big crane to come and pick you up, put you back down. So it's it's such a delight when you're going down these little roads and you see someone else coming your way. And one time I was, we had this, you know, this station wagon, I'm driving down this road, and here comes some kind of dump truck barreling down the other way. And I think, wow, this is it. I'm being called home to glory. Misty is going to write a very sad letter to Calvary. And all I could do was stop very quickly and back, you just back up until you get to a little off-road. And so we would expect on this little road if someone's going down with a bicycle and that dump truck comes barreling down and they decide to play a game of chicken, that the dump truck is winning, the person on the bicycle, there's nothing left of them when the dump truck passes by. But Paul is saying that's not how the gospel works. It's actually the opposite. The bicycle hits the dump truck shatters it to pieces, and keeps going. That God destroys human wisdom through the folly of the cross. 
And he holds up two things, two ways in which Christ displays that. That God destroys worldly wisdom through the folly of Christ's cross in verses 18 through 25. That there are only two views of the cross. It is either folly or salvation. That we're not shopping for a used car or a new computer or a house. You know, we have to think through like a thousand different things and settle on, you know, what works best for you. Now, as Paul writes, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's no in-between, no third view. And through the cross, God is aiming straight at human wisdom. Like a heat-seeking missile or a marine lining up a headshot. That it has been unchanging throughout history that God will destroy the wisdom of humanity. As he, so he quotes in verse 19, the Old Testament. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. As if to say, this is nothing new. <laughs> it's the same plan God has had all along. And then he calls out the people of his day, right? Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater? Right? We could even say of our day. Where's the politician? Where's the influencer? Where's the YouTuber? Where's the pundit? That human wisdom never had a chance against God's wisdom. There's a question that as missionaries to Japan, Misty and I are often asked, and every once in a while, we ask ourselves, why aren't there more Christians in Japan? And the assumption that usually lies beneath the question is, Japan is a developed nation. They're, they're smart people. They love the beauty of nature. They value community and relationships and good things that God has created, hasn't someone, why haven't more people figured it out by now? The assumption is the same assumption that the scribes and debaters of Paul's age are making. That somehow our brains, our insight, our knowledge give us an advantage at knowing God. But Paul says in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Do you realize what he's saying there? God chose. When he laid the foundations of creation, that no one would be able to say, wow, I am so wise, I can get close to God. That no one would be able to build up knowledge like a ladder or steps and get closer to God than those who have lesser mental facilities or less access to resources. Instead, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That God is aiming at worldly wisdom 
His work is a bullet right between the eyes of our strength. And so we either stumble or we are saved by the cross. That following human wisdom will lead anyone to ruin. We could say, and and many people might object, but surely someone in human history must have figured it out by now. There are millions and millions and millions of social media accounts, thousands and thousands of YouTube channels, and the never-ending glut of shows and movies and documentaries and novels and books and textbooks created by people from all different backgrounds and languages and cultures. They're all different with different perspectives. Surely there's something out there. They're all saying the same thing, according to Paul. They are calling us to place our trust in our strength, in our wisdom. And really, Paul only sees two big categories, as it says in verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. I want to be able to see the power, the wealth, the health, the glory, the strength. Or it needs to make sense to me, right? To the victor go the spoils. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. God helps those who help themselves. It's interesting that in Japan, the two biggest false churches are Roman Catholicism and health and wealth charismatics. So signs on one hand with the health and wealth charismatics. You must see the blessings of God in your life or he doesn't show favor on you. If you're sick, it's because you don't believe hard enough. Or Roman Catholicism on the other hand. Yes, Christ has done some stuff for us, but you still need to do some work to get into heaven. But God destroys human wisdom with two words, Christ crucified, weakness magnified, sinners justified, God slain. And anyone who is called through the folly of this cross is led to God. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God available to any who come and the wisdom of God available to any who come, regardless of their upbringing, of their status, of their strength, of their mental facilities. Christ becomes all to them. Because Christ has accomplished more through the cross than we ever could. That if humanity continues to flourish, and that if we are able to put wars behind us and cooperate, and we spread ourselves throughout the universe with space exploration and colonizing other galaxies, harnessing the power of a million stars, pushing medical science to the point where we are essentially physically immortal, ushering in an era of unsurpassed peace, we will never accomplish what one broken, bruised, bloody man gasping 
for breath did on the cross. Because as Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. But God did not stop with the cross. He doubled down with the church. That God destroys worldly wisdom through the folly of Christ's church. As we see starting in verse 26 through 31. That like the cross, there are only two ways to rightly view the church. It is either a band, well, it is either folly or salvation. <laughs> As Pastor John read, not many in the church were wise or powerful or of noble birth. That's through the church, just like the cross, God is aiming straight at human wisdom. And so we see, starting in verse 27, something repeated three times. If we were in Sunday school, I'd ask you to raise your hand and say, what, what phrase shows up three times, starting in verse 27? God chose something to shame. God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised. You know, in Japan, just like here, people really like underdog stories, you know? I'm sure a lot of you have a favorite sports movie, right, where there's a team of ragtag guys or gals who don't really got it going on. Usually a coach shows up, they get it together, no one expects them to win, and they do. For me, you'd probably remember the Titans. The church is a lot like that, except we're not actually contributing anything. We're not, you know, washed up star athletes who just need a good team to help them learn the value of teamwork. Or nerdy kids who, you know, have the guts, but not the physical prowess and just need to be pushed to practice. We're foolish. We are weak. We are nothing. And so the church either stands wholly on Christ or it does not stand at all. Unfortunately, our hearts tend to view the work of Christ as merely paying the entrance fee. As if we're going to a theme park, like Cedar Point, and Christ has paid for us to get in, but it's up to us to pay to get on the rides. That he has justified us, that he has declared us righteous, but that he is not sanctifying us, that he is not growing us gradually in righteousness. But Paul says in verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That it's not just Christ 
And his work and the cross and the gospel are not just the door. They are the way, the path, every step we take. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, Paul says. Not so, as we sometimes conclude, we may not boast. The work of Christ redeems boasting so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. That we do have something to make noise about, to share with others until they tell us to shut up because we just keep talking about that one thing. How the Son of God humbled himself to the point of death so that sinners and fools like us and all who come to him are made right with the creator of the universe. And so our confidence is not in our strength or our wisdom, but in Christ and his weakness. And so let us boast then in the folly of the cross. We let us boast in the folly of Christ's cross in our proclamation. Looking back to verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, anyone. That means you have something which is applicable, shareable to anyone you know. Not like me finding perhaps, wow, the new best cheesecake in the world. And since my wife is lactose intolerant, I can't share that with her. (laughs) The joy in Christ, the hope in Christ, the work in Christ, just because someone else is high school dropout or has three PhDs in philosophy, those aren't barriers to the news of Christ for those who are being saved. That we have something, no matter what our friends, our family, our coworkers are going through, that just becomes better news the worse their situation is. That they don't need to keep striving and struggling. That even if their cancer takes their life, there is hope in Christ. And this isn't just a message for those we know around us, but for our own hearts as well. Because remember, Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. There's even a note of irony in verse 19 when Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Because if you go back and read that verse, God is talking to Israel. He's not talking to people who don't know God or don't have the Bible. God knows that the tug of our our sinful hearts 
is towards strength. It's towards human wisdom. It's towards our efforts. And so we feel confident when we have those things and we despair when we don't. And so in the cross, we have good news for our own hearts. It doesn't matter what you accomplish in this life that the world thinks is valuable. In Christ, you are loved by the Father. And so we are also able to boast in the folly of Christ's cross in our church. As Pastor John was even just talking about, a new study starting, all in. I love the subtitle that was there. Being the body part that God called you to be. A reference from something in this very letter, 1 Corinthians. Because it's not those who can teach the Bible well, or with fancy words, or have enough time or energy to serve in youth group, or can play the drums really well, who are worthy of more honor than everyone else in the church. In fact, Paul is saying it is our weaknesses that qualify us to be part of God's church. And so he'll even end 2 Corinthians by saying, I was begging God to take away this thorn in the flesh. But God said, my strength is magnified in your weakness. And so your lowness or your weakness or your lack of something does not hinder you from being part of this church or from serving or for loving others, enjoying this community in Christ. You have something to give your brothers and sisters here. Christ himself. And so no matter how you serve, you show through your humility, through your weakness, the love of Christ. And teachers, you are able, as you open any part of the Bible, to push our brothers and sisters back to the cross. The work of Christ. Our hope in life and death that we are not our own, but belong body and soul to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has purchased us with his blood. When that Buddhist evangelist came to the door to talk to me, she barely faltered as she asked question after question and ignored half of what I was trying to say. Until... I said, and I, I don't remember what she had asked, thankfully, it's not the strength of our commitment that saves us. She didn't know what to say. Because that's how our minds so often work. Not that our life and our joy and our hope flow from the work of Christ, but that our service, our study, 
are for drawing near to him. But we have something in the cross that gives us hope, no matter how foolish it looks, that it is the love of Christ who humbled himself to the point of death in which we boast.